0: good anywhere. Here's God's word for our hearts. It's titled Children of God. It's 1 John chapter 2, uh, 28, and we're going to be uh, chapter 3, 10. It says, Children of God, and now do children continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him that is coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right is born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that I did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is righteous is right. Just as he is righteous, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother and his sister. Thank you. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks, Rick. Good morning, everybody. Hey, just by way of reminder, as we're working our way through the summer, you know, um, we started out this year with two postures. Can anybody remember the two postures that we are developing through 2023? Just shout it out. What? Rest is a way of being. Number one. Resilience is a way of doing, exactly. So we spent the first half of the year in Ecclesiastes, resisting cynicism as we sat at the feet of one of the chief cynics in all of history. And this summer, remember, we're building communities of love because we believe that rest comes out of relational proximity one unto another, support for one another, care for one another, love for one another. And the only way I'm convinced that the Church of Jesus Christ is going to not only survive but thrive in this coming generation is through deeply knit relational proximity one unto another. We will be resilient as we are resting in God one with another, knowing each other, loving each other. And so we're spending all the summer in First John. And then this fall, just to prime the pump a little bit, I'm so stoked on this fall, we're going to spend 12 weeks in the Our Father, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we're going to study prayer because we believe that the way to produce rest as a way of being is prayer. And the only way that we will be resilient in this culture is through prayer. And so this fall, we've got... Prayer on the docket, the Our Father, 12 Sundays, just breaking that prayer down, meditating in that. We're going to do a 24-hour prayer room in October, so start thinking about the slot that you want to fill for that 24-hour prayer room. We're also going to do a second round of training with Practicing the Way. We're going to go through their prayer modules. That's John Mark Comer and all of his stuff, and so it's just really an exciting time to be jumping in at Neighbors Church. Get involved in the community. Hope to see you guys at summer nights. It's a really easy way to just meet people, get to know people through the summer. Let's pray. We're in 1 John. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for this church. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for air in our lungs. Lord, John is heavy. I I, I chose 1 John Jesus, honestly, because I was ready for some reprieve from Ecclesiastes. And uh, John, is he's, he's the real deal, and he loves his people dearly, and he loves you dearly. And so, God, may we yield to the... Uh, wisdom and to the goodness of John in these texts. And may we be warned and may we quickly, Lord, where we feel our hearts pricked or moved, may we be quick to respond to your spirit for your mercies are new every morning. There's not a soul in here this morning that you have not drawn to speak to, to love, to care for, to rescue, to assure, to comfort. Do those things in the midst of this text, in the midst of this teaching, in the midst of the communion of the saints, in the midst of communion with you, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So we recently took about a week and spent it with my mom and my dad, my two brothers, their kids, their dogs at Lake Lake Wallawa in uh, eastern Oregon. It was beautiful. My father-in-law let me borrow his trailer. You know, we just went full Idaho. It was so awesome. Uh, And so as is the case when families who only get together once or twice a year, which is the case with my family, the conversations around the campfire tend to orbit around the theme of family resemblances family likenesses. So for example, my brother Troy and I, we were making our way to the volleyball courts for a not-so-fun, overly-competitive family volleyball game. And as we were walking along, my wife was coming towards us, and she said, we literally look like clones. My brother is basically a six-foot-four version of me. I'm way better looking, though. Six-foot-four, he's, he's uh, just a stretched-out version of me. Uh, my little brother, Tyler, he doesn't have any kids yet, but he does have a couple dogs, which he treats like humans. I'm not condemning that. I plan on treating my dog like a human when we can finally convince our landlords to get dogs. Uh, the dogs are hilarious because I sound and look so much like Tyler that they're just in utter, utter confusion. I'll call their names, and they think it's Tyler calling them over. But then they get to me, and they're like, wait, he looks like Tyler. He sounds like Tyler, but it's not Tyler. And you can just see the confusion on the dogs' faces. It's hilarious. All three of my brothers and I, we all refer to our wives as Babe hey, babe, could you, hey, babe, what do you, hey, babe, would you grab this, hey, babe, this, and our voices are literally identical, and so sitting around the camp, one of us yells, hey, babe, would you grab me whatever out of the cooler, and all three wives go, okay, (laughs) or all three wives go, get it yourself. You know, as we sat around camp, the talk would sort of bounce around which kids look like which parents, you know, sort of the MO at these situations. And we'd all laugh at the similarity of our kids to their parents, and it's not only in their appearance, but in their behaviors, in their mannerisms, in their social patterns. Uh, Alexis and my brother's wife, Katie, would oftentimes point an accusing finger at one of us, saying, you know what, that's just like you. Talking about some obsessive compulsive behavior that one of the kids has adopted. And then I would find myself glancing over at my mom and dad, and I'd think, hmm, that's just like her. I got that from her, and I gave that to him. Oh, that's just like them. My parents passing on to me, I passing on, we passing on to our children. The likeness, family resemblances. And this is really the marvel and the miracle of human biology. We are split off in slightly modified replicas of our fathers and our mothers at the cellular level. And family likenesses pervades every facet of our appearance and all of our actions The story of humanity is the story of God creating children. And it is the story of family resemblances. The story of the Bible is the story of family likenesses. Now, of course, in one sense, every single human being on this planet is a child of God. In that God has made every human and has fashioned all of humanity equally with dignity as image bearers. But let's get uncomfortable this morning as John makes us. The Bible makes a very clear and disturbing distinction distinction between these children. The Bible teaches that there are two distinct families of humanity living today. There are the children of God, and there are the children of the devil, as John calls them. There are the children of light, and the children of darkness, children of wrath, as Saint Paul called them, or children of grace. There are the children of the truth, and the children of the lie, the children of death, And the children of life. Now, John the Apostle, in a very pronounced way here in this text, he doubles down. And throughout all of John the Apostle's writings, he emphasizes this particular theme of two distinct families of humanity, especially throughout the Gospel of John and these three letters that he's writing to his communities that were spread out through Asia Minor, most likely in the region of Ephesus. John wanted his communities The children of God. He wanted them to celebrate and be affirmed in their adoption into the family of God. He was also greatly concerned that the same lies of the devil that had ultimately deceived the first children of God, Adam and Eve, might corrupt, pollute, and even kill the communities of Jesus, the family of Jesus. Now, this binary, this binary of two distinct families, it is terribly stark and it is horrifically offensive to our modern sensibilities. If you're like me as a modern person, you read these things and you may be sitting there saying, this is why I struggle with Christianity so much, particularly the conservative flavor that holds the authority of the Bible in high value. This is crazy talk. I personally know self-proclaimed Christians who act like the devil. And I know kind and philanthropic, altruistic atheists who are way better people than many of the Christians that I know. They act like Jesus himself. This type of arrogant, exclusionary teaching, it is bigoted and it is dangerous. And with you, on the one hand, I concur to a degree. Teachings that create an us and them view of humanity. These types of teachings have ushered in some of the most horrific events in human history. queue up all the world wars of the last generations. Exclusionary communities based on extreme beliefs, they can become ingrown, they become cultist, they become socially unaware, ineffective at the least, and opposed at the worst to social positive change. On the other hand, I disagree with a wholesale abandonment of John's teachings in this text because of its extremeness Because when we, as we try to do at Neighbors, take time and really explore what the Bible is teaching about this stark binary between the human families, and when we really sit at the feet of Jesus of Nazareth, for everything culminates in him, we find ourselves immersed in, as is always the case, a very complex and a very nuanced reality that in most ways exceeds our understanding and ability to grasp. The Bible is one of the most honest pieces of literature in all of human history in its ability to detail the raw and confusing nature of the human experience. The Bible is a highly sophisticated literary work written by humans and by the Holy Spirit simultaneously. And the Bible weaves together multitudes of themes. Last week, Zach traced for us the serpent crushing theme from Genesis all the way to us. Another primary theme through the plotline of the Bible is the story of God rescuing and transforming children of the devil by adopting, empowering, and recreating humanity as children of God. Now, interwoven within that complex theme is also the story of the legitimate children of God being led astray and acting, looking like, resembling the devil. The binary between the children of God and the devil. Friends, it is not black and white. And if you think you have figured out who's of the devil and who's of God, you're wrong. You're wrong, period. It's not static. This children of the devil, children of God, it's not locked in. It's a fluid throughout the narrative of the Bible. It's a fluid changing thing. It's complicated. Just like you and I are fluid, changing, and terribly complicated. One day dancing with the devil and the next day doing our best. To serve God. Let me give you some examples from the Bible, just to lay this out. This is just a smattering of the gnarliness of the Bible. Noah is called a righteous man. In my master's degree program with Dr. Bashir's, I sat there and argued with him because I was like, there's nobody righteous. The Bible says there's no one righteous. And Gary would be like, what does the text say? Genesis says Noah was called a righteous man. He goes on and he saves humanity by building an ark to escape the flood. And then directly after the flood, he gets super hammered on wine And he ends up naked in his tent where his son does something perverted to him or his wife in this attempted coup to take over family authority. It's disgusting. Abraham. Abraham is this exemplar of faith. He's obedient to the degree that he leaves his home, not knowing where he's going. He offers up his own son to Yahweh as a sacrifice, believing that God will raise him. At the same time, this guy doles his wife out twice over as a sex slave to foreign rulers' harems to save his own skin. Who is this guy? Moses. Moses is a murderer with a severe temper problem. And yet he's the one called to part the Red Sea by his staff, delivering all of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Samson, we all love Samson, long flowing hawk, flocks, hawk, what? Long, where am I? I got up and I went surfing at 530 this morning. I think I'm still out in the waves, man. Samson, Samson, he's anointed by God with this supernatural strength. But the dude had this insatiable lust problem. And it kept him in the bed of women who betrayed him and his people, ultimately to their deaths. What about King Saul? What an enigma this man was. The text literally tells us that Saul was given a new heart by God, he's called to be the king of Israel. And yet, he begins his reign hiding in the baggage because he's so overwhelmed with the call. He's so scared of it. But by the end of his life, the man Saul was an insane demoniac building monuments to himself while murderously chasing this little shepherd boy through the deserts of Engedi, driven by envy and rage out of his mind. And that same little shepherd boy, David, he's very famous in the Bible, he's called a man after God's heart. And the man after God's heart commits adultery murders the husband, and actually operates in the later narratives of the kings as a brutal warlord chieftain. And David just brings down unbelievable vengeance on his enemies in a ruthless tirade. The man after God's heart, David, that man's life ended with a teenage sex slave in his bed teaching his son the finer art of wrath and revenge on anybody that had opposed him. And then that son, Solomon, who was the wisest king ever to exist, ruled over the most prosperous seasons of the Hebrew kingdom, went on to disobey every single instruction in Torah in the first five books of the Bible for the kings. It was Solomon's successors who would go on and give us schools of philosophy about right and wrong living. We call it the book of Proverbs and also the utter meaningless Of life under the sun, Ecclesiastes. Thank God we're done with that book, yeah? Now, when we get to Jesus, we're almost there to our text for the morning. I gotta set this up. When we get to Jesus in the New Testament, this two family stark binary, it gets even more complicated. At one point, Peter, we all know Peter, probably one of the closest humans to Jesus in the history of humanity. Peter is unconsciously, he thinks he's being noble and valiant for his friend. He's unintentionally opposing the ultimate will of God. And he's telling Jesus, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus' response to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, this is really important, friends. Jesus accuses his closest confidant, his best friend, of operating in the likeness of Satan. In fact, he literally rebukes Satan operating through Peter. There's no with Peter, oh, Peter, I understand your confusion at my teaching and my process. There's no, Peter, I understand that your vision for your life with me isn't turning out how you thought. There's no, Peter, I empathize with your concern and your frustrations and your doubts. No, get behind me, Satan. A direct rebuke of the demonic influence Peter was operating in. Friend, be discerning. Two weeks from now, we'll get into the discernment of the spirits. Who are you listening to and what power are you operating in? Confessed Christian or not? There are things behind the curtain trying to control us. The binary blur is even further. Jesus goes on in all of the gospels and he 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 accuses the religious elite those who looked externally most like the clean and squeaky children of God. He says, you know what you are? You're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He literally calls them snakes and vipers, echoing the moment that Adam and Eve gave creation over to the original snake. In one heated exchange about family likenesses, the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day, they claimed to be the children of Abraham, by right saved because they are the seed of Abraham. And then they accused Jesus of being an illegitimate child of adultery, Not worth being listened to. And Jesus' response you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Every author of the New Testament warns you and I to pay attention to our character, lest we be deceived and end up acting like the devil. And the New Testament is replete with charges for communities like ours to be aware that children of darkness can and will camouflage themselves as children of light. Now, look at the person sitting next to you with suspicion. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) We don't know. We can't know. It's so complicated, it's so nuanced, it's so sophisticated. And I hope and pray that you get that point today because the Bible does indeed establish this stark binary. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. And each, respectively, through time, looks like and does what their father does. But it's nuanced. And trying to determine exactly what's going on in any soul with absolute certainty is wrong. It's wrong. Yet, we must watch. We must be careful. We must be aware this lengthy intro is important because as we close our time now, looking at the last half of this teaching, looking at what John says, John's text, it could so easily be misread and misapplied as a simple green light for all sorts of religious vitriol, for hyperjudgmentalism, for spiritual abuse of authority, for crusading as it has been in our history Or, more the case, without this broad context of the sophistication of the Bible and its revealing of the human experience, without that in place, you can read a text like John and just, as so many do in this day and age, which I think is demonic, I'm ready to say that publicly and out loud, I think it's demonic, simply abandon the Bible wholesale. And I think the church needs to stand once again with Jesus and say, Stop, Satan. Get behind me. Yield to the authority of the king, as it is found in the text. Very, very potent words from John. Because he wanted the children of God to know that they were indeed the children of God. And he wanted to warn children of the devil that they are on a path to destruction. John wanted to reassure the children of God of our father's good nature and good intent and good will revealed to us, in us, and through us. And he wanted to warn the children of the devil of the deceptive and destructive nature of that father. So how? Here's our, here's our leading question for the rest of our time. How do we know which family we fit into? Who do we look like? Who are we acting like? If we think we might still be acting like the devil and we don't want to do that any longer, how do we actually get into the family of God? And what if we think we're in the family of God, but we're deceived and we're a whitewashed sepulcher, just dead men's bones on the inside, full of a lot of exterior religion, but no life and buoyancy and power in the spirit within. How do we know that? How can we know? John says it's all about nature and nurture. Nature and nurture, that's the rest of our time together this morning. From anthropology to psychology to genetics, behavioral ecology, neuroscience, there is no student of human behavior worth their salt that denies the fact that you and I are who we are and we do what we do because of this complicated interweaving of our inborn nature, what we are born with. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree as the colloquial statement goes but we also are who we are and we become who we are and we do what we do as we receive nurturing through our external environment, not only our external environment, because of this thing called the cerebral frontal cortex, this big thing in the human brain that allows us to think about what we're thinking about, we're able to actually internally influence and nurture who we are and who we become and what we do. For most of us, for most of us, In this radically individualized and somewhat, I would say, somewhat, I'm not against therapy, I'm just saying somewhat over-therapized cultural moment, most of us, there's a common sort of cultural story of self-identity discovery. So see if you track with this. This is my story. When you're little, you want to be just like mom and dad. I have very distinct memories of looking at my dad saying, I want to have my dad's eyes. And because I had huge brown eyes and my dad's eyes are a little bit more almondy, I would sit in front of the mirror and just try to squint them down so that I could look like my dad. But my huge brown eyes could never get there. Through our teen years and then emergence into full adulthood, a lot of us spend a lot of time and energy trying not to become like our mom and dad. For some of us, we're healing from what I would consider legitimate mommy and daddy issues. Some of us made up mommy and daddy issues. Some, uh, there's a spectrum here. There's a spectrum here, okay? Then you get to be kind of where I'm at in your 40s where you wake up one morning and you're like, okay, I'm my dad, (laughs) I'm done fighting it. (laughs) I got his eyes, I got his facial expressions, I got his mannerisms. I'm gonna redeem the crap out of this as best I can. And then, and then something happens, and I'm on the cusp of this. This has been a real beauty between my relationship and my, with my father and I in particular. I've matured, and I've been able to say, yeah, there was this and this and this, and I've done this and this and this. I, I've been in the rodeo long enough now to do some damage myself. And we begin to actually take full responsibility for ourselves. And the finger stops getting pointed at family likenesses and family issues and all that stuff. We take full responsibility for our souls. And then we, I, have begun putting effort into mimicking the best things that my parents gave me. That's the the end of maturity with family likeness. Now, John teaches that we receive this gift of being born again when we trust in Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And I will add to that, we make him our Lord, our King, when we obey him, when we make him our all. Nothing less than that births the new life in you then this new nature as adopted, transformed children of God must be nurtured. This new identity as a child of God must be nurtured through practice and mimicry and imitation and obedience as we intentionally become more and more like God. It is this complex pattern of God's power in us and our volitional partnership with him that incrementally transforms us more and more into the likeness, looking like Jesus as his adopted sons and daughters. Now, John starts by saying, we're going to move through this very quickly now, okay? So buckle up. Here we go. John says, nurture the confidence that you have in the reality of your new nature. This is, this is ground zero. Nurture the deep confidence that you are his child. And now, dear children, continue in him. This is the Greek word meno, continue. Super dense, heavily freighted word in the New Testament. Continue in him. Remain in him. Press into him. Wait for him. Last. Be expectant of him. This is all these n- meanings in this word. So that when he appears, he, you, we may be confident and unashamed before him his coming. So John says, now, nurture your relationship with Jesus as a child of God. Literally remain in him. Abide in the family. Stay put. Press in. Rest in this new reality. This is where all of us, if you've been raised in the church, you're like, yes, how? How? And this is where at Neighbors, we really do try to pick up the ball. And I know we sound like a skipping record every Sunday. You got to do the stuff. You got to do the stuff to nurture this new nature that you've been given. Literally, and I want to put a spin on it this week, you know, Bible reading and prayer and fasting and solitude and silence and all that stuff. Think of it this way. You are mimicking Jesus's life as you read the scriptures daily. Look at what Jesus did. Put on your bracelet, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And go do the stuff. Mimic him. Let the texts and your prayers and your belief structures and your decisions apprentice under the life of Jesus as you mimic him. And then a second-fold way of transformation and cultivating and nurturing this new nature, mimic your community. Mimic and imitate your community, especially those who are further along in the journey. It's what we call mentorship. It's what we call modeling. It's what we call spiritual parenting In this hyper-individualistic culture, the idea of mimicking somebody is offensive to us, but the fact is the fact that you find mimicking somebody offensive, you're mimicking some thinker from about the 1800s that planted that thought in culture and it's just evolved to where now we think only individual expression is the most authentic piece of ourselves. That's just not the way that we work. Neuroscience tells us that we come to know ourselves from infancy through mimicry and imitation. And friends, that doesn't stop all the way through adulthood. We are still mimicking each other. It's how we know each other. It's how we become more and more who we are. And so to nurture the new nature that you have been given, you're to mimic those who have a new nature alongside of you. Imitate them. Follow their lives as they follow Jesus, particularly those who have been placed in your life with a few more years under their belt and some maturity. And know that right now, no matter where you are in the journey, somebody is mimicking you mantle of responsibility placed from the youngest to the oldest. Feel it. It's a good thing to carry that load in this life. And then we do all of this. We do all this mimicking and fasting and praying and silence and solitude and Sabbath practice and all this stuff. We're doing it all with this real hope of Jesus Christ returning and transforming all of the cosmos, bringing it under his reign. That's what John says. Be confident in your new nature so that when he comes, you won't be ashamed. You know, Every kid that has a generally healthy mommy and dad dynamic in their home, they've all heard those dreaded words, wait till your dad gets home. Wait till your dad gets home. That ominous warning is usually in the context that there's been some bad or shameful behavior. And mom's just had it up to here. when dad gets home, you're dead. Imagine the contrast to that, though. The family is planning a trip to Disneyland, and it's been building up, and mom's been building it up, or dad's been building it up. If it's a stay-at-home dad situation with mom at work, the kids have made an effort to keep it, just to keep it high and tight, because we're going to Disneyland when this parent gets home, and they're practicing. They practice obedience with what? With joy and delight, because they know that as soon as dad gets home, we are off to Disneyland. That's what John is community. That's what got John is counseling this community towards. He's he's telling us to look forward to the return of Jesus and to be ready, and to nurture it with joy and confidence that we are his child, to look forward with expectation and hope and longing and patience, so that when Jesus establishes his rule on earth, you and I, as his brothers and sisters, will stand and all the cosmos will say, whoa, they rule like Jesus. They judge angels like Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Weird passage. Check it out. They rule and reign like Jesus. What you're being trained to do now is rule and reign like Jesus, to love like Jesus, this creation for all of eternity. Now, we cannot forget this new nature piece because we're not manufacturing this identity through rule-keeping. We're not... Manufacturing this new nature. We're discovering it, what's been planted in us through obedience. We're not earning a place in the family. We're growing more and more secure and certain in our place in the family. John, of all the biblical authors, he understands and he writes most pointedly about the necessity, this necessity of being remade being given a whole new nature, a whole new life with new desires and new motivations in line with the heart of God. He opens his gospel by saying, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. We all remember it was John, who records the most famous account of Jesus and the religious leader, Nicodemus, Nick at night there, late in the evening, the religious teacher of Israel comes to Jesus, and Jesus has to explain to the guy, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, this nurture piece, or excuse me, this nature piece. We are nurturing a new DNA. and It's a new creation that has been supernaturally brought about in this mystery of faith by the goodness and the mercy of God himself. And this is important. This is important. Because very religious and very moral people may look so like the children of God, but have yet to be made new. Not born again. Their reliance is on their religious works, on their moral stature, on the happy face that they're able to paint a picture of in front of the public. But it's not upon the love and the power of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Very, very different. And often friends, and maybe this will set your heart at ease, my sweet brother or sister. Oftentimes, people who are truly born again, I know this was me, I think this is still me, 25 years into this gig called Christianity. People who are truly born again will go through extended seasons of struggle and we may look like we're living for the devil, but God is still deep at work out of the nature that he has given us, slowly and intentionally bringing about obedience and transformation. It's very complicated. Requires tremendous amounts of patience and persistence and gentleness and kindness. John continually, though, clarifies his terms and his standards, the goal, the ideal that we're all being drawn to. 1 John two twenty nine. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How do you know you've been born again? You want to do right. In fact, how do you know you've been born again? The very desire that you want to do right by Jesus means you've been born again. Right now, if you're sitting in your chair wondering, I want to do right. How do I do right? Where do I find what right is? Welcome to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm finding is in conversations with particularly kids that are leaving the church or just hearing about these things is when actually confronted, when actually confronted with sin, do you want to repent and follow Jesus? really pressed, some are saying, no, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. That is a terrifying, dangerous statement to make publicly. We nurture this conviction. We nurture and respond to the impulses of the new nature through confession with our community, asking for prayer and counsel. So as we look at Jesus' life, we're almost done here and we're going to come to communion. The primary place where we... Revel. And this is the, there's no step one, step two, step three to to this process of nurturing this new nature. John just flat out says, look at Jesus, look at his life, revel in his love. Do the stuff. Do the stuff. Stop doing the stuff, the, the distraction, the news feeds, the social media platforms, the the communities around you that you know right now have nothing to do with Jesus, but you're mimicking them. Stop doing that and look at Jesus and look at his community. This is what he says First John three, one through three. See what great love the father has lavished on us. That's a That English translation does nothing for what's happening here in the Greek. John stands up. He gets a megaphone. He cranks it up as loud as he can, and he says, Behold, I wish I could get a big, booming, baritone voice. Behold, and it echoes out through all the cosmos. Sit and stare and revel and let your mind be saturated in the love that the Father has lavished on you because you are his child. And then he puts this exclamation point on it, and that is what we are. This is the truth that we fight the devil's lies with. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Difference, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. John says, revel in and behold God's love. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance today, not condemnation. It's his mercy that transforms us. It's, it's being held by him in the midst of our struggle and knowing that he does not leave us. He does not forsake us. And that is what strengthens us. And you may be like me sitting there saying, Dan, I don't feel loved. I don't feel loved. My daddy, my daddy issues, I don't know in my body what it means to feel loved. I don't know how to do that. And I just want to ask you, do you want to? Do you want to? Then you got to do the stuff. You've got to direct your attention to looking at Jesus. You've got to meditate and saturate your mind in the goodness of the scriptures and in His what he has done for you. And you do this, friends, over and over and over, regardless of what your body or your family history or your mental health issues or your social media platforms are trying to form you into. It is a fight, this nurturing and this formation. John says unequivocally, one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and given him your life. You call him Lord. You are a child of God. And so do not mock what he has given you. Live into that reality with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul. Nurture that childlike nature through prayer and mimicking your community and practices with Jesus. And then look forward to that day when we'll finally be like Jesus. I just want to say this one more time. The end of you and I, Who you will be in heaven is not some disembodied spirit floating around with little naked babies with wings and all of that weird stuff that we've got from the paintings from whenever that came about, the Renaissance. None of that, none of that.
0: Who you will
1: be is fully you. You, How many of you struggle with impatience? Good. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, liars. (laughs) Repent. Tell the truth. (laughs) who you will be when the king comes is perfectly patient like Jesus. Imagine you infinitely patient. Imagine you, for those of you that struggle with lust, imagine you infinitely satisfied, sexually satisfied, uh, significant satisfied. Lust is just, just, need for significance is just another form of lust and greed and covetousness. Uh Imagine, imagine, your enemy right now, whoever that is that hurt you the most. Lex next week is going to teach. It's going to be right to the hearts of our our community and what is needed in this day and age. Imagine the person that's hurt you the most and doing whatever it took for their highest flourishing. That's who you're becoming as a child of God. Are you doing that perfectly right now? No, but we look forward to Loving and ruling and judging and tending to creation as co-rulers alongside Jesus and so Daily Christian practices. What would I do right now if I was ruling this earth like Jesus? What would I do in this relationship if I was if I was in this relationship with this person like Jesus is in this relationship? And this will take an entire lifetime. Here's where we wrap it up Know this and this is where I find great assurance for myself and for the church that I lead the children of light will incrementally become more and more light. It looks like a, the the graph looks like this towards the light, and then it, there's, there's like big cliffs sometimes, and it's like up again a little bit, and then maybe back this way, and then it's like this. But it's always over the long duration of a life, the children of light, because the seed of God has been placed in you, that which is nurtured and growing, it's always going to be taking you up. Be assured of that today. Take a big, deep breath and go, I will always be moving up. He'll never leave me, never forsake me. These are the truths that I fight the devil with. And eventually, children of the devil will be seen. It just, the curtain gets parted. Maybe not always in this life, but at some point, the curtain will always be parted. Everyone who sins, First John 3, 4 through 8, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, I want to stop here. Just give me five more minutes from my own life. Uh, super gnarly background. I become a Christian. I'm overwhelmed when I first came into the church. Like, the, they were talking about, like, purity and, you know, sexual purity and stuff. And I was like, dude, if they find out about my life, I am, they're gonna, they're, I was terrified. Uh, I, I really, really struggled with my addictions for about a year. and. The only way I can describe what a born-again experience is like for somebody like me, a brand-new believer, where that's embedded is, I I would I would drink all week long, just hammered. And <clears throat> then I'd wake up Sunday morning, I'd be like, I am still ripped. I am not going to church. And I'd find myself driving in the car to, to church. And then I would get to church, and I would sit in the back and... Uh, They would start singing, and I I always wore wore my hat down like this. I had, you know, big, huge earrings, and I would wear my hat down like this, and I would just sit in the back with my hands raised and cry. I'd cry the entire time. And Greg would start teaching. My pastor, he'd start teaching. I'd just sit back there. (laughs) I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. (laughs) And then I would go, and by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd be blackout drunk. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. There was a distinct moment in my life. It was October of around 1998 where I woke up from another three or four day binge and just sensed the Holy Spirit saying, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. That's an extreme example of what God is doing with your impatience. Like, you're going to have these moments where the Spirit within you, you you have that one moment with your wife again for the 8,000th time in your 20 years of marriage. But then one day, you have one moment where you're like, "Ah!" and you respond gently and carefully with wisdom and intuition and, and attentiveness. The ball just moved forward a little bit. And what I'm assured of is that when I'm 80, I'll be perfect for you. <laughs> it, you'll keep going. So today, take stock. Where has God moved you forward? The one who does what is righteous, righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I'm just going to stop there, and we're going to come to communion. We'll, we'll, We'll pick up this next week. But I think it's important that we come to communion this morning now, and that you take time with the Holy Spirit today. I think we need to take time, most of us in this room, need to take stock and give him thanks for the seed that he has planted in you. For the seed that he has planted in you. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. As we come to communion this morning, I I want to exhort our church, exhort you personally, to look back over your life in Jesus and just let the Holy Spirit illuminate where you've gotten victory. Even if it's the tiniest, Tiniest little bit of victory, you've changed just a little bit. There's a little more patience, a little more purity. Maybe some of us today just need to celebrate. Man, I'm still struggling with this. That's a good thing. It's when the struggle is absent that you need to be like, "Oh, who am I listening to? Who's guiding me?" Today during communion, just just let the Spirit take you through the journey that He has you on, and then let your hearts rest and assure your hearts that you are indeed children of God. As we take communion, as as there's this mysterious thing that happens when Christians take communion. You know, we're not Catholic. It's not like literal presence, but there's something, there's something more oomphy when you take communion together. And however, I think, Joshua, are you doing communion today? Okay, Joshua's doing communion today. It's on. Wherever he leads us in the meditation together, something where we look at each other as children of God and we assure each other because of this bread, because of this, this cup, we are assured of, of salvation and joy and peace. Father, bless this time now as the saints, the children of God, revel. Let us revel this morning in this infinite love. Where there's fear in this room, fear. Lord, I pray that you would comfort because you love so dearly. Where there's a struggle with sin, that that rut that just we can't get free from it? Today, Lord, would you show us how you have moved the ball forward just a little bit? We're a little bit more like Jesus. Lord, may may we love one another and deliver, Lord, this world that's under the grasp of Satan. May we be the rescuers of our friends and family members through the preaching of the gospel, the calling to faith to come under the reign of Jesus and be adopted into his family. We trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.